episode 76, improving the hearts, the minds, and the function of our cancer patients. Let's go. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quedro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quadcast Nation, welcome back. We're on episode 76. By the way, if you missed episode 75 with Dr. Stephen Tucker, it's incredible. This is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and we wanted to, you know, do our part to raise the awareness of cancer-related issues and topics. So episode 75 with Stephen Tucker talking about how your lifestyle changes, diet, nutrition, stress management can impact cancer outcomes, I think was to be honest with you, it was one of my favorite episodes we've done lately. So make sure to tune in on that one. Today's episode, so much fun. We actually got to co-host it with one of our medical students and team members, Kush Patel. And he introduced me to these incredible guys over from Scarborough, Riyad Akbarali and Dr. Kabar Yared. And these guys are doing truly amazing things. But before diving into it, I'm going to tell you about our sponsor, BetterHelp. These guys are providing online counseling service that is second to none, whether we're talking individual counseling, couples counseling, family, whether you're struggling with your teenager, whether you're struggling with compassion fatigue, they have experts from throughout North America to assist. And honestly, these are tough times. And you know, like we're in the middle of a pandemic and I know there's a lot of people struggling through isolation and different measures that we're needing to take to try and mitigate risk. So if you're interested, go to betterhelp.com, use promo code solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. That's betterhelp.com. Okay, let me tell you about our guest today. So Dr. Kabar Yared, Director of Cardio-Oncology Program. We also have exercise physiologist Riyad Akbarali, and they've created this program where they're oncology patients. It's clear that they have been getting progressively better outcomes. And part of that is treatments are getting better, but there's side effects. There's the impact that it has on your heart, the impact that it has on your function and your strength. And these guys together are working on programs on getting our patients back to high quality of life, getting them functional, getting them stronger, getting their hearts ticking the way they need to tick. And I'm just, I just really commend these guys for their efforts to see where the patient's needs are and doing what they can to get them to where they need to be. And this is a very unique program, this cardio-oncology program, this rehabilitation program in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada, and we just want to celebrate them. And once again, I want to thank Kush Patel for finding me these guys. It left me inspired. And without further delay, Dr. Kabar Yarid and Riyadh Akbarali and Kush Patel. Quadcast Nation, we got something special today for y'all. My boy Kush Patel is going to be co-hosting with me. And we got Dr. Kabar Yarid and Riyadh Akbarali talking about cardio-oncology, talking about rehab. They have some phenomenal work they're doing down uh, in the Toronto area, Scarborough area, to try and get our patients healthier. And I'm really excited to talk to everybody. So welcome to the Quadcast. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Dr. K. Amazing, amazing. So Kush, why don't you start us off, my friend? All right, let's get right into it. 
So first of all, to the viewers, I'm a second year med school student here at U Ottawa Med, just in case you're wondering who is this guy. And the first time I actually even got introduced to cardiac was in grade 12 when I was doing my co-op with Riyadh, who's one of our guests. So I'm so lucky to have him kind of guide me through this journey. And I did a couple of projects that were related to how exercise relates to cardiology and also how exercise relates to oncology patients and what are some benefits. And, you know, I always find that the intersection of different specialties in medicines where complex patient problems lie. And this is where we can truly come up with unique and creative solutions to help our patients. And, you know, both Dr. Yared and Riyad, you are both helping address issues that overlap the specialties of cardiology and oncology at the Scarborough Health Network. So can you just help us understand what this relatively new field of cardio-oncology even is about in the first place? I can take this. Thanks, Kush. And first, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to talk about this topic, which is quite a strong passion of mine. So cardio-oncology, to put it very broadly for our audience, is an interplay between oncology and cardiology. And what that interplay really boils down to is the cardiovascular care of patients going through cancer therapy. More specifically, actually, what we aim to do in cardio-oncology is try and take care of those going through cancer therapy when they have any type of cardiovascular complaint. We also try and manage the cardiovascular complications of cancer therapy. And we can go into that in a little bit because that's really the brunt of the work that we do is we learn and we try to understand what complications from a cardiac perspective that these patients are going to have are going to suffer from, be it right prior to their cancer therapy, during their cancer therapy, and just as importantly, after their cancer therapy is completed. And our job is to try and pick out who is going to have that complication, which turns out is very difficult to do. Our job is to spot that complication as soon as possible and take care of that patient from a cardiovascular perspective so as to return them to their cancer therapy as soon as possible with minimal interruption. And then finally, you know, there are patients who undergo cancer therapy that has no known cardiovascular complications, but who have separately developed some type of cardiovascular complication, some type of cardiovascular symptom. And that's our role as well. So really, it's beginning to end looking at these patients from a cardiovascular perspective, but a very hopefully complete cardiovascular perspective from lifestyle and dietary management, exercise, medical therapy, and then managing them through their cancer therapy in as seamless way as possible. So cardio-oncology has taken really the forefront of cardiology in the last 10 years or so, simply because we've noticed that cancer patients are doing so well during their cancer therapy because their cancers are being spotted much earlier, they're being started on treatment much earlier, and their cancers are actually under control. And in fact, what we've noticed is that cancer patients are surviving longer than ever before. And perhaps unfortunately, as a consequence of that, because they're living longer than ever before, they are now just starting to develop cardiovascular problems, be they from the cancer therapy itself, be they from the risks that are common between cancer and cardiovascular disease, or simply because they're living longer and are older. And so it's almost like this cancer problem is being replaced with a secondary problem, the cardiovascular issues. And we've jumped on this bandwagon, if you will, or this new issue that allows us to hopefully extend their lives that much further. Brilliant. 
What I love about it too is it sounds like there's a lot of holistic approach, right? Like you're talking about not only their meds, but adjusting lifestyle, what they eat, exercise, addressing all these things. Give us a sense of the prevalence of this. You know what I mean? Like, cause we hear, as you mentioned, like related to potential their treatment or underlying conditions prior to starting their treatment, but how busy are you guys? Like how many referrals are you guys seeing? That's a great question. You'll see different cardio-oncology clinics have set up their protocols uh, differently. What we managed to do at SHN was we got together with our oncology colleagues and everyone was on board right away. And the reason they were on board, I'd like to think, was that we had not only an oncology physician champion, but a cardiology physician champion. So we sat down together and I told them, at least for our purposes at SHN, the cardio-oncology clinic would take over all the cardiac care of the oncology population. And so we learned what the needs of these patients were. We learned all the chemotherapy regimens, what the timing was specifically. And so we also designated certain patient populations as being higher risk than other patient populations. And the reason we did that is we couldn't see every oncology patient for obvious reasons but we could see the high-risk populations, those populations who are receiving anthracycline-based regimens, okay? So these are chemotherapies typically used for breast cancer, for lymphoma, and for some gastrointestinal cancers. And so these anthracycline-receiving patients were deemed much higher risk than other patients receiving perhaps less cardiovascular toxic chemotherapies. And that allowed us to take all these patients We screen them all with echocardiography because that's the cheapest, fastest, most complete way to pre-screen them. And believe it or not, we spot some patients who have heart trouble that have no symptoms prior to receiving their chemotherapy, and that has allowed us to alter their chemotherapy regimen. So to really answer your question, we do see all these patients that are receiving anthracyclines. A fair bit of them are low risk in the general sense, but they're high risk because they're receiving anthracyclines. But the general statistic where patients do get in trouble is around 5 to 12%. So we see 5 to 12% of patients who receive most commonly anthracyclines, less commonly trastuzumab or Herceptin, which is typically given either in isolation or after the anthracycline for breast cancer and for some type of esophageal cancers. And so these are the patients that typically get in trouble. And when I say in trouble, I mean heart failure. And so that's the percentage that we're seeing at SHN currently. We do see a smattering of patients who have high blood pressure from other therapies typically given for certain types of leukemias, for prostate cancer, and then we see much less so arrhythmias. So overall, you know, we run our clinic once a week. We see 12 patients every single Friday. A lot of them are simply watching. We're watching their heart function as they receive potentially toxic chemotherapy, but others we have to act on very quickly. And we're very fortunate to be able to have a clinic every single week because if someone has an echocardiogram on a Tuesday and we've spotted a problem, they are really seeing that Friday immediately and started on therapy as we see fit. Amazing. The the thing I love too is it's vital for our cancer patients to stay on schedule, to be able to try and avoid their cycles of chemotherapy and so forth. So you guys are being proactive and also reactive when needed to be able to address these needs. It's so important. And I think maybe Kushma wanted to ask the same question, but just in case, what does these treatments look like? You know what I mean? Because you're saying we got, I'm sure there's some medication, we talk about lifestyle, so forth. 
exercise. But what does that look like if you're a patient in that clinic? Sure. So I want Riyadh to jump in as soon as I'm done with the medical part. So as soon as we notice someone's having a problem, we're going to pick the most common and probably most dangerous complication, and that's heart failure. And heart failure can take on various forms. There are four stages of heart failure, if you will. We see them at any point in those stages. And like you said, the timeliness of intervention from a cardiac perspective is of utmost importance. And part of the reason we started this clinic in the first place is we noticed that there was a huge lag between the oncologist noticing that there was a problem. And then once that problem was noticed, to reach out to a cardiologist who would take a patient. And as you know, full well, sometimes the wait list can be long. And there's not always a triaging of how important some of these referrals are. So this allows us to centralize the care, bring in the patient as quickly as possible. And now in the advent of virtual care, we just get on the phone or we get on OTN, we call them and we discuss if we have to. So a typical assessment of a patient is number one, how bad is their heart failure? And so we derive a number from an echocardiogram or an MRI or whatever. And we derive a number about how bad their heart failure is. And then we look at their symptoms and see how suffering they are. And based on their symptoms and based on the degree of heart failure, we tailor their medical therapy. Now, medical therapy with respect to cardio-oncology patients is a little bit nebulous. And the reason is this is a very new field. And in most of the trials that have examined medications for heart failure, cancer patients have been excluded from those trials. So we don't have randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials to look at ACE inhibitors or beta blockers in this patient population. What we've done is extrapolated. We say, okay, someone with heart failure from a heart attack is going to respond very well to these medications. It would seem appropriate or it would seem correct that these patients would do well, cancer patients would do well. And so that's what we've done. And we start them on anti-heart failure therapy, again, based on their symptoms, of course. But then we also go into that overall holistic approach that you had mentioned. Already, these patients are scared out of their minds because of their cancer. So there is a certain anxiety component that comes together with now a heart failure diagnosis. And so part of our job is to talk them through this and explain to them what our role is and how we're going to get them through this. We also go through heart failure education. And the reason we're able to do that very easily is our nurses in the cardio-oncology clinic are derived from our heart failure clinic nurses. They're the same ones. They're educated in this sphere as well. They know how to approach patients. They know how to give them documentation with respect to self-restriction and fluid restriction and activities and noticing weight gain, et cetera. We also teach them to measure their blood pressure at home. And then finally, we teach them about exercise. Now, I have to say, ever since I have connected with Riyadh in our cardiac rehab program, and we've learned a lot more about the benefits of exercise in cardio-oncology, we start to push exercise way early in the assessment. So even before the development of heart failure, when we meet them on day one pre-chemo, we have a little line item in our nursing intake form as to whether they exercise or not. And if they do, we want to know exactly what they do. And we push them. We counsel them about the benefits of exercise, and Riyadh will talk about this, pre-chemo, during chemo, and post-chemo, and it's extremely important. And we talk until we're blue in the face about the benefits of exercise. So I want Riyadh to pipe in here. Yeah, yeah. Because typically we've you know, noticed that certain patients will do well with rehab, certain patients don't need it at all because they're so motivated, and other patients are just either too exhausted 
too unmotivated or too lazy, unfortunately. Mm. But we know that there's a segment of the population that will definitely, definitely improve with rehab. And we send them over to our other site where rehab takes over that care. So I'm just going to quickly jump in, Riyadh. So, you know, I've worked with you quite a bit. And this is super fascinating because we've taken a look at how exercise helps cardiology patients separately and then how exercise helps oncology patients separately. But this is kind of like a mix of all that. So I'm really excited to kind of know what impacts it's had on your patients and at what stage of the patient's uh, time in the hospital are they coming uh, to see you? Uh, yeah, so take the floor. 100%. Thanks a lot, Kosha. And Kibar, man, thanks a lot for the overview there. I think I'm just going to step back before I get into that, Kush, is that Kibar's clinic, the brilliant thing about his clinic is right beside the major cancer center within Scarborough General. So it's not an added burden to go to one of his appointments, literally down the hallway from our chemo clinic. So I think in the way of patient-centered care, Kibar's clinic has done a great job in the way of catering to it. Because one of the issues with cancer patients is that they got a lot of appointments to begin with, mm. right? So it becomes an excessive burden. So I mean, if you got to go to the cardio-oncology clinic, chemo clinic, echocardiograms or whatnot, like Hebar has strategically placed his clinic in, in the right place uh, to, to make it easy on the patients. So now to what you're saying, Kush, is that I find that fascinating also because for the longest time, we never knew what the benefits of exercise was and whether or not it was even safe for people who had cancer, who are on chemotherapy treatment, who are pre, during, or post. So the thing is, a lot of the research recently, or and I say recently, probably within the past 10 to 15 years, has really tried to highlight whether or not there's actual benefit. So back in 2013, the CCO or Cancer Care Ontario, they put out a statement saying that cancer was safe and effective for all cancer patients anywhere along the continuum of cancer, right? So that was a really big statement uh, that they put out. So we know that, that cancer is beneficial, but mainly from like a quality of life, lessening fatigue, increasing fitness, just overall feel good and overall well-being, it's good for our patients. Then we know from the cardiac side, back in the 70s when research started over there, that exercise was equally as good for anyone along the continuum of cardiovascular disease. So now you have cardiovascular, you have cancer, and this one thing of exercise that benefits all of them throughout the journey from, like I said, from all the way well-being, from physical function. The difference is within the cardiovascular field, we found that exercise actually has benefits on mortality. So we haven't been able to justify and demonstrate that effectively within the cancer world as yet. Hence why a lot of the cancer rehabilitation and cancer exercise programs are not government funded. A lot of them come from individual people, individual donors. So now that being said, we find that cancer patients who come into our program, the only issue with cardiac rehabilitation is that it's another added appointment. And that adds a lot of extra burden to them. But even the general gist of saying, hey, listen, walk 10 minutes, walk 15 minutes, walk 20 minutes, that makes a huge difference to their well-being. When we look at even the individual studies that we've done at our own center, we found that the biggest benefit has been on quality of life for our cancer patients. But like I said, we haven't been able to demonstrate out of sheer numbers the actual treatment effect that it would have on actual mortality. I love it, man, because I'll tell you, well-being, not only the mental well-being, but also the physical improvement. We see it every day in the hospital. The patients that are sarcopenic or like low muscle or frail, they do poorly relative to the patients that are stronger. I give a quick example. My neighbor gave this story before, but I just want to celebrate my yeah. boy. Uh, <laughs> he, he had a, a pretty extensive accident, but he is at the gym five days a week and he's in his mid-70s. Wow. Okay. He endured a two-month ICU stay 
and he's home now, able to play with his grandkids. And it's all because of programs like yours or just that having that level of exercise, having that level of fitness and the will. So I love it. And the other thing, just to reinforce, like just because there's no evidence yet doesn't mean it's not a good idea. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I know we're all about evidence-based practice, but at some point you just got to like invest and see what happens. 100%. I just want to add to what Riyadh was saying, because, you know, that we have, and now the American Heart Association has released a scientific statement about the benefits of cardio-oncology specific rehab and exercise. And it's amazing to see, much like your friend in the ICU, but even on a lesser degree, a lot of these patients who are fit and healthy going into chemotherapy, who come out of chemotherapy without much symptoms, cardiovascular-wise, if they undergo a cardiovascular exercise stress test or cardiopulmonary exercise stress test, we know that their metabolic capacity or their VO2 max is diminished compared to a similar person of a similar fitness having not undergone chemotherapy. So there is a huge asymptomatic effect of chemotherapy or a cancer diagnosis in general on these patients' cardiovascular well-being. So it behooves us in the medical community to push exercise on all of these patients, right? Yes. But to further add, just because you haven't shown a mortality benefit, the mortality benefit actually has been shown in certain cancer groups. Like in the breast cancer group, there is a mortality benefit with respect to exercise. The numbers are small, as Riyadh was saying, right? So it's hard to you know, generalize to the whole population. But even if I tell patients, you know, you have a lower risk of stroke and heart attack, okay? So there's definitely a decrease in cardiovascular events. Maybe not overall mortality, but definitely a decrease in cardiovascular events. Typically, I see their eyes light up, right? So somehow it's not enough to tell patients you're going to feel better, um, but you're going to live longer or you're going to have less risk of any type of uh, cardiovascular complication. That seems to motivate them a little bit. But despite that, it's really hard to overcome fatigue, just fatigue, right? Because fatigue leads to lower motivation. And just to get them out of the house is really hard. Not to mention, you know, if they're going through chemotherapy, they're afraid of being exposed. So they don't go to the gym, they don't go swimming, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's where the onus is on the rehab guys to protect them and walk them with a mask, for example, or walk them in isolation in one lane by themselves. But certainly you have this message needs to be pushed out. And I'm glad we have a forum like this to not only uh, push the message that we are taking care of cancer patients from a cardiovascular perspective, but also that we want them to exercise. And we think that it's hugely beneficial to all of them. You got it. And if I might jump in, is that uh, I'll rewind a little. A year after I got married back in 2005, a year later, my wife got diagnosed with ovarian cancer um, at that time. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, man. But you know what? So, so she had ovarian cancer and uh, we were only like 25, 26 at the time. So we were very young, you know, going into our appointments and chemo. It all happened so fast. And I remember those days that she would just be on the floor, you know, throwing up and, you know, the symptoms that Kibar is alluding to, whether it be fatigue or you're not feeling well. And, and kind of in those moments, it's like exercise and lifestyle. And these things are like the last thing on the continuum. And the thing is, I think that when I recall those kind of in, in our life, when we were kind of in those moments, I remember even being in the, in the nursing hall at Princess Margaret Hospital down in Toronto, and the nurse would still continue to kind of encourage them, you know, just walk up the hall a little bit, do a little bit, do whatever you can, because that tends to be our, uh, our motto. 
five minutes is better than zero, 10 is better than five, 15 minutes is better than 10. So that's kind of how we do this. But, but going back to that experience I had, I think that seeing my wife and taking care of my wife, we didn't have kids at that time. Now we were fortunate to have three beautiful kids after she had ovarian cancer. Oh, and it's amazing. Yeah, like it's, it's a crazy story actually. But you know, that being said, I remember what it was like being in those shoes of a cancer patient and what it was like to overcome cancer uh, too with my wife. And to have that perspective in working with my cancer patients, it gives you an additional lens to kind of work with, to be overly empathetic and to, to empathize with what they're experiencing, you know, kind of as a practitioner. It becomes very important because when you start working in this capacity, you realize exercise is just like, uh, like what Kibar was alluding to. They come with their anxieties, their psychosocial challenges, whatever they're going through. But exercise is just a layer. Once you start breaking down exercise and spending time with your patients, it breaks down to the further challenges that they're going through. We were running a program for our palliative group. They used to come every Friday and they had the palliative cancer. We did a kind of informal study on them, informal qualitative study. What are the be best benefit of being here? We thought of it exercise and training that we're doing, everything that we're doing. They said it was just a forum to come together to be with other people who understood what they were going through. Community. That, that was the biggest deal for them. So exercise provides that platform. It helps on top of helping with cardiovascular, as Kipar is talking about, as well as cancer. It also brings that community and is that like soul unifier that actually brings everyone together in order for everyone to overcome their, their physical challenges and their emotional and mental challenges too. Well said. That's just amazing. Thanks so much for sharing that personal experience, Riyad. Uh, you know, I'm just thinking here, all this that you're doing is kind of like in addition to your normal kind of responsibilities or regular responsibilities as a cardiologist or as a cardiac rehab physiologist. And so I'm just thinking like you already have so much on your plate. Like what are some of the challenges? Is it time restriction? Is it being able to get to those core issues that the patient is experiencing? Maybe it's not just the physical aspect. I just want to kind of, if you can dig into it, that'd be great. Yeah, 100%. The thing is, yeah, time is always a challenge. I think like anyone, because as Kibar will know, it's not like an academic center where you have like RAs, you have access to people who will actually like push through your REB applications and your REB applications are always getting stuck somewhere then you're left to deal with them yourself. Like it's, it's ridiculous actually right now. I always have this argument with our research office, but bless them because they, they work very hard too. Now that being said, it is challenging to do that. But a lot of the drive similar to what Kibar is our own passion for this. I remember back when when my wife was going through what she was going through, my specialty has always been exercise. I understood exercise well. I always wanted to find an intersection between that. And I promised at that time when she was going through this that I wanted to contribute back to the cancer community and somehow. I had to contribute back to the cancer community because the people at Princess Margaret, the people at Toronto General, the people at the centers where we were, from the nurses, our physicians, the, the cleaning staff, everyone. I said, I have to contribute back to this community in a meaningful way. And back then, I didn't know that there was a link between cancer and exercise or, the, or how prevalent it was at that time because it's still relatively new. And a few years later, i say by 2010, I started kind of investigating and seeing, hey, there is a link with cancer and exercise here. And kind of that drive that we have within ourselves, that drive that Keybar has in order to dig deep to create a program, because it's so tough, let alone research, to develop programs in a community hospital is crazy, right? So the thing is that that's the kind of thing that you're wanting this to, to help others. Your wantingness to have a cause in order to do this are the things that continue to, to make it happen. And we've been fortunate that when you find like-minded people around the table, it creates a synergy that you're actually excited to do the work that we're doing. I'll echo those statements. I, you know, you, you stole my thunder. It's passion. It's, it's entirely passion. 
my passion started in 2015. I was at the American Society of Echo Conference. I'm a cardiac imager by training. My specialties are MRI and echocardiography. So it was never heart failure. It was never cardio-oncology to begin with when I was doing my fellowship. But then I attended a talk by a one prominent physician who was at the Cleveland Clinic at the time, who was showing us data about advanced echocardiographic imaging to spot what we used to call cardiotoxicity at the time from chemotherapy. And I was riveted by this talk. Because at the bottom of it all, I'm an imager. And when it's an imaging talk at the basis of diagnosing such a complicated uh, process, my ears perked up. And I immediately came back to Toronto and I grabbed one of our oncology colleagues and we started hashing it out. And it grew from there. And the more it grew, the more the interest grew within me, but also within our institution. But at the bottom of it all, really, it's not to sound corny at all, but patients come in, they're petrified because they're being sent to a heart doctor, not necessarily knowing that we're here to watch them even more carefully, right? It's not necessarily because they have a problem. So there's that connection that really helps, but there's the academic process where, you know, we try and do fancier ways to diagnose heart failure. We luckily contribute to ongoing clinical trials. Our friends at UHN and uh, close colleagues have put us on board to participate in their clinical trials. We're going to do our own clinical trials soon enough. So yes, it is a ton of work, right? When you don't have an armamentarium of research coordinators and residents and fellows and nurse practitioners, etc. But when you have constant, there it is again, passion. Riyadh emails me every two weeks. Can I do this? What about if I do this? What if, uh, you know, let me do this. Let me talk to this person. So it's great to see and it pushes you as well. It really pushes you. We just got called uh, last week from the University of Pennsylvania asking us to participate in a clinical trial with them. So clearly, you know, we have our medical community there's the exercise community that come together once in a while, but we use our connections around North America and sometimes Europe to push the field forward. And that only motivates you further. I want y'all to appreciate this, man. It's all about patient centeredness. Right. What we could do about making the experience better for our patients, getting our patients stronger, improving their well-being. And these guys are hustling to make it happen. <laughs> hustling, understaffed, underappreciated. Hopefully this will help because this is what we need. I'm going off on a bit of a soapbox, but so much of our research is on outcomes that who gives a shit about, you know, like improving your hemoglobin A1C by 0.3% or whatever. But what these guys are doing is making lives better, making not only the patients, the families, I'm sure like their loved ones, when they see them more active and their spirits are up, like think about what that does to people. And Riyadh, like I got to say that story Holy shit. We didn't know that. I didn't know this before starting the game, man, that your wife survived ovarian and you got three lovely kids. How old are your kids, buddy? <laughs> They're uh, six, eight and 12. Holy smack. Six, eight and 12. You look too young to have a 12 year old. My God. Um, <laughs> but seriously, like, I'm so proud of what you guys are accomplishing. We hear the potential of the clinic and, and the rehabilitation. Does any stories either of you come to mind about how this has impacted patient directly or family member directly. Do any stories come to mind when it comes to your experience? Um, a couple of stories come to mind because, you know, they're, they're the patients you've been seeing for five years now, 
And so those are the really the ones that, at least in my case, that really stick in my head because you become friendly on a certain level with these patients because you know them for so long, at least in this realm. I picked up a patient from the ICU who had um, heart failure. And at that time, the cardio-oncology clinic was just beginning. And the talk of chemotherapy-related cardiac dysfunction was only just beginning. And we pieced it together and we said, you know, there is no other reason for this patient but to have chemotherapy-related cardiac dysfunction. That's basically what we call it now. We used to call it cardiotoxicity. And so we, you know, brought her into the clinic. She got better over the next three to four months. She started off real thin, real thin. And she had such an attitude about her, despite everything. She's from the Caribbean. I'm not going to pretend... I, knew, I remember where, unfortunately, but somewhere in the Caribbean with such a great attitude, such an outlook on life, and she managed to get her appetite back. It's funny, we kind of joke around a little bit because she loved her Caribbean cooking and she would sometimes bring it in back pre-COVID, of course. Um, <laughs> but to the point where I saw her just glowing and getting healthier and healthier, I don't even know if I have to, sh- I should be sharing this, but at some point I said, okay, my dear, now you got to cut back on the caloric intake. I know you love it, <laughs> but now we're moving on to another risk factor and I don't want that for you. And you know, I think it's great. You made such a rebound back, but you can't overshoot either. Uh, so we laughed about it, right? She was a very good natured about it. And then before we had any evidence, she was doing so well for a year or two that she looked at me and said, you know what, do I need these medications? And this is why it sticks in my head. And I said, you know what? I'm going to be chicken about it and really just taper off the medications real slow because we had no evidence at the time that it was safe or unsafe to do so. And so over the course of six months, she came off her meds. She did really well. Six, nine months later, she comes back in exceedingly short of breath, unwell. And uh, we did some tests and found her back in heart failure for no immediate apparent reason other than oh man, we took her off her meds, you know, less than a year ago, and now she recurred. And now we know more, right? And that's the humbling part about this specialty is we don't know enough to really fly eyes closed. We know just enough to manage. And at the same time, a lot of our work is anecdotal. Okay, I heard uh, UHN is doing this. I heard UPenn is doing this. Stanford is doing that. Let's try this and see how it goes. And so since then, we've actually learned that it's probably unsafe to stop these medications. So thankfully, we got to her quickly enough because we had regular follow-ups with her. We didn't let her go out into the community. We keep our survivors, our cancer survivors, as long as we can, of course. Point is, she came back on medications and she rebounded, thankfully, nicely. And so she's back with that smile. We see her once a year now. She's doing really well no chance that I'm taking her off her meds anymore. (laughs) And she knows that, but unfortunately not everybody knows that. Not everybody goes through this potentially catastrophic event and they demand to get off their meds, right? But we know enough not to stop these medications, unfortunately, uh, because we know that a certain segment of the population recur. All this to say that I hold her close enough to my heart uh, because she went through so much and And she has such a wit about her that is quite infectious, actually. 
you know, I always find it very inspiring to hear stories like that. And those stories always stick to you. And even as a, as a med student right now, you know, you like see a couple of patients when you're shadowing or even taking history and things like that. And then, and then once you have that patient in mind, it just builds on that for your future experiences. And you guys are doing some amazing work. I just wonder how many clinics are there doing this kind of work? And if they're not, like, how do they go about doing something like this? And just kind of like, what are the next steps? in the in this kind of field so you know there is the canadian cardio oncology network which is a fantastic collection of amazingly enthusiastic academically minded mostly cardiologists but with a fair bit of oncologists in fact our chief our executive officer is an oncologist dr christine bresden maisley who is now at Mount Sinai Hospital. She went from St. Mike's. So she heads up our group. And so in that oncology network, the cardio-oncology network, uh, we know who's doing these clinics and who's not and how they're doing their clinics. And we you know, share stories as well as to how our experiences have been. You know, we have an officially titled clinic. UHN has as well. St. Michael's and Sunnybrook Hospital, at least in the Toronto area, do cardio-oncology. Do they have a standalone cardio-oncology clinic? I'm going to say I'm not sure, but I know that there are specific cardiologists who have a keen interest in cardio-oncology. Kim Connolly is a cardiologist at St. Michael's Hospital who does a ton of research, imaging research with respect to cardio-oncology. And then across the country, the foremost people who started this was the Ottawa Heart, in fact. Dr. Susan Dent, who's an oncologist, was an oncologist there. She's been poached to Duke University. She started all of it in Ottawa. And in fact, we owe it at SHN, we owe it to Ottawa for helping us get off the ground. They held a preceptorship. <laughs> they held a preceptorship there where we came, we visited for a day and a half. They gave us some didactic lectures, showed us how it works. Dr. Angeline Law, who you may know, she's a cardiologist there. She was part of their group. And Dr. Johnson, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Chris Johnson. Chris Johnson. They tell me echo. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so they showed us the ropes and they taught us how to get off the ground. And it was, they were instrumental in helping us. So, and now, you know, at SHN, I'm going to put in a plug, if you don't mind. Absolutely. We're starting a cardiac amyloidosis clinic. Sounds funky, but it's an up-and-coming diagnostic problem that we're noticing in a certain subset of the population with heart failure. And we owe this, of course, to the leadership of Dr. Margot Davis and Dr. Noel Fine out in Vancouver and Calgary, respectively. And so, you know, we have conversations with them at these meetings, uh, and they help us start amazing programs like this. So to say that it's still nascent, well... It's up and coming for sure, but certainly more and more people are aware of the importance of cardio-oncology, more and more aware of the importance of timely-based care, timely-based cardiovascular intervention, and most importantly, okay, and I pride SHN on this, is a tight communication between cardiology and oncology, because I am not qualified to say to Mrs. Smith, that she should put her chemotherapy on hold because her heart is doing whatever. Communication is key, yo. Absolutely. I get on the phone, I text, I email, whatever I need to do, speak to that patient's oncologist then and there. And I tell them, this is what I found from a heart perspective. This is what I can do. However, for me to do my job carefully, I would recommend that that chemotherapy be stopped or at least be held 
until we can, you know, get her heart back uh, in working order. But that's their call. And that's their call with the patient because they know what the prognosis regarding the cancer is. They know if they can afford to stop the chemotherapy and for how long. So we work together, right? We work together from a professional perspective in order to make sure that that patient, if they're going to stop their chemo, that they get right back on as soon as possible. So where's the next step? The next step is more awareness, at least from a patient perspective as to what we do. More awareness about the benefits of coming to see us, the benefits of at least plugging their care into our clinic so that we can, if not only follow along, but intervene when we have to. The future is also in more exercise and more rehab. Again, it's awareness. It's awareness that, you know, we're not punishing these patients by having them walk 10, 15, 30, 45 minutes. We're actually helping to develop an overall approach to cancer and cardiac care that is only bound to push them through. And then finally, really, the holy grail of cardio-oncology is twofold. (laughs) Figuring out who's going to get cardiotoxicity and who's not. We still know that there are risk factors. We know that if you're diabetic and you have high cholesterol and that you're older than 65 years old, depending on certain chemotherapy regimens, that you're higher risk to develop chemotherapy-related cardiac dysfunction of some sort. But we don't know. We have risk scores out there. My buddy, Hossam Abdelkader, he's a cardiologist at Women's College. He's doing phenomenal work regarding risk scoring in the breast cancer population. So here's a plug out to his work and his team there. He's an amazing guy. And he's able, or he's been able to show us simply by database mining to say, okay, these are the specific cardiac risk factors or general risk factors that are going to put you at higher risk. Now, the question is, okay, if we figure out who the high risk population is, can we put them on medications early enough? Can we put them on statins? Can we put them on an ACE inhibitor? And hopefully protect them throughout the cancer continuum until they're done their chemotherapy and avoid this heart failure that we're unfortunately seeing. So that's number one. And then the second part of the Holy Grail is how can we interfere before the dysfunction occurs? Yes. And that's where this fantastic talk five years ago occurred with respect to really fancy imaging techniques that we do by echo, interesting imaging techniques we do by cardiac MRI that allows us to see down to a cardiomyocyte, okay, a cellular level that we can spot dysfunction before we see an overall drop in the heart function. That's the future. Yeah. And Dr. Dinesh Devendranathan, he's a cardiologist and the chief of the Ted Rogers Cardiotoxicity Prevention Clinic at UHN. He, um, we've recently finished up a trial with him looking at really specific ways of looking at a heart muscle dysfunction and acting based on that and seeing if that makes a difference. So that's where we are right now. And that's where we're headed, Coach, to answer your question. Yeah, I mean, to me, this is a future of like, not, you know, just cardio-oncology, but like healthcare, personalized early intervention. If you really want to like make a difference in lives in an era of AI, machine learning, advanced imaging, like there's no excuses right now for us not to be attacking that full steam. You know what I'm saying? Like imagine knowing you have risk factors to be sick, you're likely to be sick and intervening while you're healthy. Do it. So many things that I, I want to celebrate what you're saying too. Um, 
the other thing, like uh, models of care, like I think the fact that you guys are once again approaching it from a patient-centered approach, the model of care. You know what I mean? Like to have that rehab integrated into the cardio-oncology environment. And I want to emphasize this for Quadcast Nation, for all the cushions of the world, the young upstarts that are going to be future leaders in medicine. Think outside the box. We don't have to be so siloed. We don't have to be so siloed to the point where, hey, I'm the oncologist. This is going to be the orthopedics. This is going to be the, you know, the gastroenterology. If it makes sense to integrate, integrate because I promise you better care is going to happen. We already are too siloed. So I I really think that's an amazing point. The last thing to what you're saying in terms of the form of, you know, the value of exercise too, like we're in COVID era right now. Okay. And we know exercise benefits so many populations as we talked about, but this is also within our COVID patients because we are seeing diabetic, obese, hypertensive patients. You know what I'm saying? And here's another story of why exercise is going to benefit you, okay? Like, on top of what you eat, your overall well-being, your sleep, but exercise while you can, do your part. You know, it's not all about, it's important to public health measures, obviously, but it's also like, let's do our part individually right. to be able to combat this bad boy. It, uh, if you don't mind me jumping in here, yeah. since, uh, since COVID hit the weekend, I believe on March 13th, when the emergency declaration was, was declared, our cardiac rehab program, we typically see, see people in clinic, right? And we have different, uh, several sites throughout our Durham region, which is about 3,300 square kilometers, right? So we partner with community sites and we see patients where they are essentially. But since COVID, we flipped to an entire virtual program mm-hmm. and we're still seeing, we've created a studio to deliver live education, to deliver live events online. We call patients weekly and we're meeting them exactly where they are. So the thing is that this model of care to continue to be extended to, to individuals undergoing cancer treatment, to be extended to people who are not able to make it to clinic, I think even post-COVID will show us the opportunities that we can continue to do even after this era is done of working within this virtual space. I guess there's a silver lining here, right? Because I wonder if the attendance in your program is increased because patients are like, they don't have to, you know, obviously come to the hospital, find parking, you know, if they don't have a loved one, especially if they're going through intense therapy, then, you know, they're fatigued. Like, do you find that there are more patients who are wanting to participate in this program because it's from home? Yeah, you got it. Well, sometimes I don't know because people have nothing to do, right? (laughs) So they're attending all the classes, right? Because we saw like a thousand percent increase in our education visits, like a 400 <laughs> percent. We just dropped we just dropped a paper right on this. <laughs> right. So like so. So I'm trying to figure out like, OK, people do this an appetite. Our patient volumes, they slid a little bit just because our community referrals are down because patients aren't being seen in clinic as much. But now that being said, people want to be here, man. People look forward to talking to us. They look forward to engaging with us. Right. So. <laughs> So that being said, it's definitely something that, that will last, but patients have definitely been engaged through this whole process. Amazing. Guys, this has been unbelievable. I feel motivated in so many ways in terms of care delivery, in terms of engaging our patients more, in terms of exercise, and just having more faith in our medical profession, knowing that you guys are thinking outside the box and doing what you can to make our patients better. I'm just so proud of what you guys are doing and hustling. You know, like that's what I hear too is the hustle, the drive, the passion, as you mentioned, Kabar, like, yes, 
You know what I mean? We need more of that in medicine. So yeah, the cushions of the world, the upstarts who still have it, they still have it in them. I want them to hear this story and do their part. And so I just want to thank you so much for agreeing to do the show. Kush, I feel like you're going to be taking over the show or something better host than I, I, I promise I won't. I promise <laughs> I won't. But thank you so much for this opportunity, Dr. K. I mean, you know, it means a lot to me. And I'm really glad that uh, Riyadh and Dr. Yared were able to join us because, you know, this has been a really unique segment in itself. So, yeah, just thanks so much. But, you know, I'll, I'll leave you with the podcast. <laughs> for now, for now. Kumar, you look like you were about to say something, my friend. Yeah, I just want to, uh, to the cushions of the world, right? I think that's an excellent statement because it depends on the setting where you work. Okay, so this is the message to all those who are looking to think outside the box. And this is what I've learned over this, albeit still short journey, is if you have a passion, if you want to champion something, okay, it's not going to fall in your lap. There is no hospital administrator in Canada who is going to just give you money to start something unless they see what you see. The drive is in you. The passion, of course, starts with you. But use that passion and use that drive to channel into building something within your institution. And if that means you need to build a business case, well, learn how to build a business case. If you need to try and understand and research more as to how to convince senior administrators who really don't want to spend any money, right, how to spend more money on this specific topic, this specific dream of yours, then you got to learn how to do that. And you got to talk your way all the way to the top, no matter what. You should never stop. You should never stop because Riyadh got to where he was simply because he continued to push. And I'm sure he's not going to stop pushing anytime soon. And that's the type of person that he is. I'll brag, you know, four years ago, we showed our administration what our cardio-oncology is doing, our clinic is doing. And they presented us with an innovation award for $100,000. You know how far that takes a clinic like ours? We paid for our nurses for years thereafter to spend extra time with patients, to spend extra time managing uh, chart reviews, to make sure that all the charts are complete and we had the most amount of information to help manage our patients. And that's only because we pushed. Simply saying what you want to do isn't enough. You really got to push your dream forward and that's the only way it's going to work. Well put, my friend. Thanks again, crew. And I hope we get to connect somehow down the road. Post-COVID, we all need to have a beer or something. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. (laughs) Quackass Nation, tell me that ain't changing the boogie, man. I'm talking delivery of care. I'm talking all personalized health. We're talking being there for our patients, guys. This is unbelievable. Follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook at Quackass. Leave any comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Leave that rating. Subscribe. Anywhere you listen to podcasts, we appreciate it. It helps with the visibility of the show. And guys, we're going to continue to hustle, man. We're going to continue to bring high-quality episodes because we think we're making a difference. It starts with a conversation, guys. All right. Thanks so much for listening.